Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine Podcast Radio. You're about to listen to a new Redefining Technology podcast. Standing on two feet, having dexterous hands, developing a language that allows us to communicate, and the ability to understand abstract concepts. These are all part of the equation of humanity. Still, it is the capacity to create tools and advance the technology that has allowed us to thrive on this planet and maybe on others. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. Sean. I'm tired. Yeah, cold day active showing television. <laughs> I'm tired of doing the same thing over and over and over. And, yeah, uh, again, me too. Cold active show intelligence. Yeah, maybe for the, the mundane things, but I don't know about the creative stuff. Can it, can oh, it yeah. really tap into my mind and, and create that weird weird crap that uh, comes out of my head? <laughs> We, we have talked about that quite a bit, you know, Weird can it be, head. well, now that I try to avoid it, but more about artificial intelligence, can it create art as it is doing right now, but is it really art and can it take over creative uh, tasks like writing music, writing poetry and, uh, you know, and react maybe to those things that as human, we, we think it doesn't take much, but there is a lot going on in our brain, even making a split second decision. So I think we're hitting a wall there with artificial intelligence where it seems like it can repeat task, um, make it faster, maybe, but I don't know, maybe somebody else has a different perspective. I don't see I it yet. So. I think so. What? There's there's a conversation we had we haven't published it yet but uh, with Carrie and Raphael where we we talked about AI and gaming and they they really opened my mind to my perspective on where AI fits in and it, I think if if you approach it from it's about to replace everything then then maybe we're not quite there but as a way to augment humans and maybe maybe help us along the path or help help whatever we're doing uh, follow the path that we want it to. <laughs> I think there may be some interesting things there. Um, today we're looking at a different something written by artificial intelligence, and that is code. So that the actual code that writes all the other stuff <laughs> for us and creates the apps, creates the experience that we want. And, of course, Marco, I, I have no idea what I'm talking about. That's why we have a guest as soon as you say code, I'm checking out. So. <laughs> That's right. 
But if you check out the code, Mark, you have to check it back in. <laughs> Remember to do that. But uh, all right, joking aside, uh, I'm thrilled to have a longtime friend. It's been ages since we connected. Um, we spent a lot of time together at uh, a big yellow company, uh, slinging code and bringing stuff to market. And uh, good friend Matthew Lodge is on the show. Matthew, thanks for joining us today. Uh, thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. And uh, yeah, I mean, you've you've been up to a lot of cool things, and uh, I've I've watched you watched you progress and grow over over time. And uh, you're working on some really interesting things now. But uh, maybe just to kick it into gear, so folk, I know who you are. Marco doesn't, and many others may not. So, uh, who is Matthew Lodge? What have you been up to, and uh, what's your current role? Well, currently, I'm CEO of a company called Diff Blue in Oxford, England, so out of the UK. It's a spin out from the University of Oxford, from the computer science department. And essentially, we make software that writes software. So, that's kind of fun, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get into that. I mean, my background is mostly in product and, you know, you and I worked together in Silicon Valley for a long time and that, that's where I spent most of my career. I done some really interesting, fun things. I, when I started out as a junior engineer, I wrote some code that flew on the uh, International Space Station and the Boeing 777. I helped uh, connect uh, six countries to the internet for the first time in the early days of the internet before working for a big networking vendor in San Jose that I'm sure everyone's very familiar with. So I've done some really fun things, built cloud services, and uh, DiffBlue is you know, solving this uh, huge challenge where there's way more code to be written than there are people to write it. And that's that's a good uh, topic to talk in uh, redefining technology. It's, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, I'm going to start with uh, what nightmares may be made of. When you think in artificial intelligence to start rewriting our own code or its own code, and uh, and where we go from there. Now I know we, we we're not eventually talking about that, like you know, conscious artificial intelligence, right. or, or you can if you want to. Feel free to do that. <laughs> but like a software that writes software, tell me a little bit more about that. Yes. So. I mean, the irony of software, you think about, you know, software has revolutionized so many industries, right? We're 11 years past Mark Andreessen's column in the Wall Street Journal. He's, a, he's op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about, you know, software is eating the world and it's transforming all these different industries. But the irony is that software has never transformed itself, right? It, it, 100% of the code pretty much today is written manually. You think about any other industry where you're like, yeah, we're just going to sit down and we're going to do everything by hand. Right? It sounds crazy, but that's what we do in software. And the irony is that maybe 50%, maybe more of coding is boring, repetitive, error-prone stuff. And so we thought that was a good place to start when it came to automating writing software. We can do those parts and then basically freeze up the developers to focus on you know, the fun, creative things. Now, maybe take us on a little journey, Matthew, because I know there's a, I, I've heard, things like no code and certainly there are uh, modules a lot of modules engineers can pull together that perhaps they don't have to do hardly any coding but they can just pull all the services together and bundle them in a certain way and, and organize them in some some workflow that 
and then slap a nice interface on it or not, just enable it through APIs, right? <laughs> Which then yeah. lets somebody else use it as a module. So I'm wondering how 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 have we come to this point where, or what what point are we at? I, I think is really the question. Um, how much code is being generated, or how much code is being has been already created and is just being consumed? And that's kind of the question I have yeah. at the moment. Yeah, that you could sort of break it down into three main areas. So, so there's the three things going on to sort of tackle this problem of not enough coders out there. And so things like low code and no code. No code is essentially allowing people who are not software developers to automate processes because a lot of software does automation. Right? That's the that's the main benefit. And so you can empower analysts and people, you know, the kind of kind of people who could put together a spreadsheet can now put together applications. They can, you know, generate essentially automatically generate code in the background so they can become like mobile apps or web apps. And that solves one class of problem, especially around things like process automation. You're sort of putting that into the hands of people who live and breathe those processes every day and can essentially automate those without any help from software developers. The low-code stuff is is really interesting in the sense that this sort of you know, the open source world has really a, a pioneered low-code. And if you think about the way Python data science is done today, Python and R are the top languages in data science. And if you are a data scientist in the area, you write code, but you don't, you're not like a professional developer. You're not really interested in writing the same level of code as a professional developer. You're interested in solving a particular problem. And there are these big stacks of open source libraries that make that process a whole lot easier. So the amount of code that you write is quite small. And so in the Python world, you know, things like pandas um, and you know, the uh, machine learning libraries from the likes of Facebook and Google and things like Google TensorFlow, you, know, you can train uh, a neural network across you know, multiple machines with just a few lines of Python. But you still got organizations that run on proprietary software and the proprietary because that's where the differentiation is in their business. And these you know, systems need to be built and maintained by software developers. And that is the area that's really had very little progress in there. There's been attempts to generate code in the past, but they were pretty crude. They're pretty mechanical. They wrote code that no developer would like to maintain. And that's a big issue. If developers can't maintain the code, then it's not really very useful. Uh, but what we've seen is the same kind of machine learning and uh, AI techniques that have been used to such great effect in things like you know, text generation, machine, uh, machine learning for image recognition, applying those same things to, to writing code. And kind of to my earlier point of uh, conversation we had before where the, our two co our guests uh, basically opened my mind to think about AI differently is mm -hmm. if you, if you approach it from, it's going to solve everything in the big picture. Um, maybe we're not quite there yet. So with that in mind, what, what's possible? Are we, are there certain types of parts of the program that uh, are open to uh, yeah. AI writing code? Is it the connection between parts? Is it logic across the part? Where, where, where does this fit in? Yeah, that's yeah, a great question. 
So today, I think we're just starting to scratch the surface. And there are really two things you can use today. If you're a software developer and you want to use these techniques today and use this, this kind of tooling and software, there are really two things you can do. The first one is the auto-completion tools. So a company called Tab9 and a couple of others a few years ago developed very smart auto-completion. Because auto-completion is not new. You've had this in development environments for a while, right? So the software knows. You know, the, the IDE knows about the syntax uh, of the program. It knows what the identifiers are. And so it can sort of help you write boilerplate code. But the auto-completion tool sort of took that one step further and like, okay, this looks like you're headed down a picket and like you're you're going to train, let's say you're going to train, a, you're going to implement a, a neuron. You're going to write your own machine learning code. You're going to implement a neuron. So if you think about that, the tab nine and others basically started to give you more of the code more of the logic right so think of them as companions and then most more recently we've had github with copilot which as the name suggests is something that codes alongside of you and then amazon web services a couple of weeks ago uh, introduced code whisperer very similar idea and essentially what they do they're trained on open public software uh, that's available on GitHub or other repositories. And so they've seen lots of software before. And so when you start typing, they sort of look, they look at what you've got and they try and complete that. And so they will suggest a series of completions so you can speed up your coding. So it's particularly useful in the case of things like Copilot and Coderist, but it's particularly useful for um, what they call fo calling foreign lands. So you're writing some code and you're calling, let's say Twilio, and you want to send an SMS text. And you can't remember how to use the Twilio API. You've read the documentation, but you're not really sure you haven't done it before. Now, if you are a software developer today, then what you're going to do is go on Stack Overflow, you know, look for some examples of code, see who's done that before, probably cut and paste some of those, uh, tinker with them until they do what you want, and, and there's your code. In the case of these auto-completion tools, they, they've seen lots and lots of examples of calling Twilio to send an SMS. And so you, you put in a comment that says, I'm going to send an SMS with Twilio, and then you start typing, and it will complete an API call to Twilio, and it'll fill in everything you've currently got, knows the context, put it into an API call, and that code will be pretty close to correct. Now, it's, it's usually not exactly correct, but it's pretty good. So there's the auto-completion. And then the second category, and the one that we focus on, is testing, where we can automatically write unit tests to, to test software. And that's the kind of thing that DiffBlue does, and that's what our customers use it for. So, um, so this channel, uh, Matthew, it's it's all it was born from the idea that you know sometimes we just do things with technology just because we can, mm -hmm. and then we're like, yeah, we'll figure out, <laughs> right? And the idea is to let's do it with the good intention. And the good intention, I, I the more we talk about this stuff, and I look at technology, and the more for me. And I'm going to connect again with that famous conversation that Sean already brought up a few times. Is is a tool, like it, mm -hmm. it's it's another technological tool, just way more advanced than a hammer, right? Or or the industrial revolution, which was advanced at the time, machinery, steam, all of that stuff. Yeah. But it seems to me that it's it's still just and by just I don't want to diminish it, but you know it's simply a, a tool. So you tell it what to do, and it does it. Yes. And, and when we attach to that, the word artificial 
and in particular intelligence, it yes. seems to me that we bring it to a completely different ballgame where it just decide what we need, decide what we do. You know, it's not just, it's kind of like, all right, car, you, you need to stop drive yourself from point A to point Z. I don't care how you get there. So mm-hmm. I know it's a little bit more philosophical, but can you tell me mm-hmm. some case study where the limitation applies and there maybe you get surprised by actually what this artificial intelligence encoding can do? Yeah. Yeah. So I really don't like the term artificial intelligence and uh, for two reasons, because first of all, it's not artificial. So the benefits, this stuff really works, right? And the benefits are real and it's not intelligent. There is no intelligence involved. It's statistical methods. I mean, essentially, that's that's what you're doing when you're running these models to make you know, you're making predictions about the future. You know, and when we uh, write tests, so we're writing unit tests, we're writing tests that find regressions in code. And so, what we do is we we predict what a good test is going to be, and then we refine that test uh, through a process of iteration. Use reinforcement learning. So that iteration is driven through reinforcement learning. We learn what a good test looks like. Essentially, is what is what's going on. There's absolutely no intelligence in that. And similarly, you know, with Copilot and Code Whisperer, you've got auto-completion tools. They're making predictions about what they think you're going to type next, right? Based on what they've seen before. But they don't, they don't understand your program. They don't know what you're trying to do. It's just a statistical model. So I, I, I'm sorry to keep going back to this other conversation, but the way it was described to me as picture a paintbrush, uh-huh. right? And typically a paintbrush has one color. Maybe you get a little creative. You mix a few colors and the way you, you apply the brush, you might get some different things. But these guys described it as this paintbrush can paint a landscape. Like with one swipe, mm-hmm. you get the trees and the hills and the lake. And, and yeah. you, tell the, you tell the brush, this is what I want you to paint for me. And I'm, so I'm wondering how how that might apply to either creating code or creating test cases where yeah. it's multiple things in one one part that maybe you're covering. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah. So the uh, the kind of thing, you know, the analogy there is uh, the kind of stuff you can see with models that have been trained, uh, generative models that have been trained to like, literally paint a landscape or come up with a, something like a photograph. And so Dali is a good example of that from OpenAI. That is most similar to the auto-completion tool because they've seen landscapes before. And they, know, they have an association between, you know, when you say you literally type in a landscape and what a landscape looks like. And so it, it's essentially what it's doing is processing your text. It has a a model that knows about significance of different words, you know, if a word is a verb or an adjective and so on. And it can essentially translate that or transform that into combination of images. And that's what's, and that is what's going on with the uh, co-pilot and code whisperer. It's a, it's a transformation. So you put something in, you've seen lots of the examples before. And so you think, you know, it, you know the model is basically saying, I think the thing comes next is this. With unit testing, what we do there is actually much more like your gameplay example, 
right? So reinforcement learning is used to play a lot of games. So if you look at uh, Google AlphaGo uh, as a reinforcement learning model. So in the game of Go, you've got more possible game states than there are atoms in the universe, right? Huge set of possible moves that you could play. And so techniques like, you know, sort of brute force search, which, you know, early game playing algorithms basically did a version of that. So Deep Blue from IBM uh, just basically looked at every possible move in the end game and picked the best one, right? And you can do that with chess because the number of moves is much smaller. You just have to be fast. But in the case of Go, when you can't do that, then essentially what you do instead is you conduct a search and you spend time searching uh, in places where solutions are more likely. Um, and so the reinforcement learning approach guides that search. And so you start, you, you, you predict what, are, in the case of AlphaGo, it just guesses what the potential moves could be randomly. And then it sort of plays the game out and it follow and it builds a game tree and it sort of and it if it it follows a tree and if things like look like they're pretty good, things are going well with this particular set of moves, then it keeps heading down that path. If things aren't going so well, it may backtrack and try something else. But essentially you're conducting this search in this area of what look like to be good moves to find the to find the next move. And it's not guaranteed to be the best one because you can't look at all the possible next moves. But it's much more likely to be a good move. We do the same thing when we're writing tests. We're, we guess what a good test is going to be, and we run it against the code. So we can we run the test to see how well it performs, how much coverage does it get, how good is it as a test. And then we predict what a better test would look like. We could try that. And then if things are getting better, then we keep going, and we predict more tests, and we keep going, and we, and we run all these tests, and we pick the best ones that achieve the objective in the case of testing, which is coverage, code coverage. So those are really the two different techniques. That's really cool. Uh, and, and it helps to understand the, the, the context, in, in my opinion. Let, let's move from the fun and game to, to the business world, right? I mean, the, the inspiration for this was this article about reducing the developer shortage and some people yeah. may already jump the gun is like ah there is not going to be more developer we're losing the job <laughs> the robots are coming you know because there's always this but then we're like no 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 calm down we we're okay they're just helping in, in a way so how is this going to address this developer shortage that we all know it's a it's a real problem yeah, it, it is a real problem. And I mean, none of our customers have like fired anyone because of our software. That's not how they think about it, right? <laughs> not, not yet, not yet. <laughs> no, it's, well, they're like, look, we've got a lot to get done here, right? And so essentially, this is great because we're taking away a big burden for them. And, and, and we never suggest that you could replace anybody with some software because there are things that developers can do that, you know, current state of the art, you know, we, we, we won't get you 100% coverage. We might get you to 70 or 80%, but we're never going to get you all the way to the top. And in some cases, the, the developers understand what the program is supposed to do. And this is really crucial. Our software does not understand what the program is supposed to do. We don't know what that is. We just know what it does, what it actually does. And so we write tests for that. And so developers can come up with tests that we would never come up with, our software would never come up with. 
But you think about the burden of that and how much time it takes and how tedious it is. And also humans are not well adapted for certain tasks. You know, if you if something is is repetitive and boring, then it becomes error prone because as humans, we just don't want to think about that. Uh, and then in our, in our world, negative test cases. Right? Everyone, everybody can write tests for the happy path. Thinking up the path, you know, like how, what are all the negative test cases? Much harder just because of the way our brains work, right? So we've never, you know, people and development teams are like, great, I've got something that can really help me. It can take a lot of workload off me. And that gives me more time to focus on all the things that, that you know, my team and uh, my organization wants me to do. They want to have new features in the software. They want us to be more competitive. They want to, and all of that is where I can spend more time on that and less time on the mechanical stuff. So talk to me about the, the the process for this. So engineers, I mean, I come from a, a QA engineering. And so when yeah. you say the word test, uh, my ears uh, perk up. Um, but clearly there is always uh, an interaction and collaboration between the developers and the, and the quality assurance team, even if yeah. there are QA engineers involved that said, here, here's the outcome, kind of to your point, here's the outcome we're shooting for. What are the yeah. paths that could derail us from reaching that point? And that's right. How can how can we arrive there quickly with every iteration of the code that's being developed? Which of course now is not uh, nine months time like the early days when when I started developing apps. Um, yeah, it's now in minutes, maybe even seconds for some behemoths like Netflix and others that that yeah. release every every few minutes or so. Yeah. So how do, yeah, how, so do, how, do, how do we how do we get there? Yeah, so Netflix, I think, deploys more than a thousand times a day, right? So it's less than a minute. Um, so you, you've got to that level of change in a in a software code base. How, so how did we get to that? Because as you said, you know, we didn't used to do that. We used to, you know, QA at the end of the process, and we'd ship once or twice a year, and QA team would uh, go through, you know, some some small number of times a year because we had to go through a QA process. It might take weeks or in some cases months, depending on what the software was and how complicated it was and so on. And what's happened in software, as you know, is the, the adoption of Agile. Agile is essentially taking the um, ideas of things like lean manufacturing production lines and applying that to software and saying, well, if you think of software as a production line, like pipeline, Right, where code comes in at one end and it gets automatically deployed at the other, right? So some uh, some software is deployed onto some infrastructure. Then the idea is that you want to find problems sooner, right? The sooner you find something, the faster you can fix it. And then uh, if you're making cars, if there's a broken component on the car, you can fix that on a production line in a couple of minutes. It's very cheap. It's just basically the cost of a new component. And so the same applies to software, and that's where unit testing comes from. So unit testing is different to sort of traditional QA. Unit tests are designed to run quickly, and they're designed to run at the same time the developer is writing that particular section of code so that you can find those bugs right at the time the developer's in the zone. They're working on a particular thing. They understand this particular section of code. And so if they find a bug at that point, it's very quick for them to go fix that. That's not to say you don't still need QA and make sure the, app, the software does the right thing. The idea is you're trying to find more things sooner rather than finding them at the end in traditional QA. 
because when you find them in QA, as you know, all you know is the software didn't do what it was supposed to do. You don't know why, so you have to triage that. The developers probably moved on to something else. They're on their next task, whatever that is. So when the bug comes along and we can't figure out what it is, the developer has to drop, drop what they're doing and sort of go back and sort of get into their brain where, back where they were in their particular code. They have to root cause the thing. What caused this problem? What's the what's the problem I need to go fix? They need code to fix. And then you've got to run through and test it all again. So that's the difference, right? So unit testing, agile requires unit testing. If you don't have unit tests, very, very difficult to adopt agile because you don't find problems until the end. And then you're back in the cycle of sort of waterfall where you're shipping a few times a year instead of multiple times a day. Now, is there a place for this and this being AI written code for things like I'm thinking availability and integrity mm -hmm. of, of the application and, and its data where, and I'm going with my, my uh, QA mindset here where yeah. once, once the, the build was done, the application had to run for six months right? <laughs> just to, <laughs> to ensure that it stayed online. Obviously if you're, if you're releasing yep. every, every few days, maybe that six month mark is no longer required, but there's still a, a level of five nines availability that, that people expect yeah. with the service. And then the other part is kind of the integrity where, and this starts to cross over in cybersecurity that we're not going to go too deep here, but just the idea that, that the inputs uh, could be, yeah, inserted in a certain way that, that throws the app off kilter or the outputs mm -hmm. uh, could present information that's uh, not relevant or inaccurate. So yeah. how, how does AI written code play in availability and integrity? Does it help in any way? Yeah, yeah, so it helps on the integrity. So what, when we're writing tests, uh, typically we are covering corner cases as well. And we're covering negative tests. So when the, you know, what does the software do when you put in zero or one versus, you know, that something is properly formed and understanding that behavior. And this is one of the interesting things, you know, our software works by understanding the behavior of the program and writing tests that reflect the current behavior. So essentially what happens. And so people say, well, what happens if the behavior is wrong? What happens if there's a bug in there that nobody's found yet? And the answer to that is like, well, you deployed this application already. So the rest of the software already depends on that bug right, and that current behavior. And so if you change the behavior, in the case of you know, fixing this bug, you need to know that. <laughs> you need to know that you've changed behavior because the rest of the system depends on the actual behavior, not what you thought it should do. And so this uh, testing this way can really help you with those kinds of integrity issues because it essentially is flagging up changes in behavior and that can affect your uh, integrity of your uh, application. The other thing, if you, you know, the crossover into security is that, like, so what is a security vulnerability? It's a bug. It's where the software is doing something, but it has an undesirable side effect, right? The side effect is the vulnerability itself, right? So maybe there's a way to, you know, get some input into this that was not expected, right? So you haven't sanitized the input. That's like a classic security vulnerability. It's buggy code. And essentially what you're looking to do is find those bugs uh, and fix them. One of the things we found with poorly tested code base, and you run our product against it, it's actually a way of documenting what the code does. 
And so what we find is developers will look at the test that we write and they go, oh, I didn't realize it did that. Um, because it's poorly documented, the person that wrote it left the organization years ago. No one really understands this code base particularly well. So that's a very common situation. And so seeing, and if you don't have a good set of tests that currently reflect what the application does, seeing a new set of tests that reflect the current behavior helps you understand those things. On the uh, availability front, the other reason why people are much more interested in unit tests is because they're breaking the application down into smaller chunks to make it more highly available. So adoption of you know, microservices, as they call it. So breaking down into smaller independent chunks of an application like Netflix so that you can improve the availability of the application by having multiple copies of those services running. And if you're going to do that, then the same problem um, applies, right? You're breaking down the software, you're making changes to it, and you don't want to break it, you don't want to change the behavior. And so that's the advantage of the kind of stuff we do. So as we uh, start wrapping here, let's bring it back to, uh, you know, the every, you know, the, the regular user, the consumer world. Mm -hmm. And what does it mean for them? I'm assuming, of course, it, services and product with less bugs i'm assuming yep. would would they would they actually notice and uh and how much better can it get from here and also and this is my my creative mind question is do you see this process improving creativity because it free the engineers and you know and 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 people that innovate uh, mind instead of taking care of, you know, it's like the metaphor of yeah. if you're like taking the water out of the boat, you don't know where you're going. You're not even enjoying your trip, right? Yes. Thing. So the benefit to the users, the consumers and the benefit for uh, innovation. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's So I think you hit on two things there, right? So they, the, the old, you know, joke about when you're up to your neck in alligators, it's hard to remember the goal was to drain the swamp, right? So it, so <laughs> that's a big part of it. So I don't know that necessarily end users would notice that there are fewer bugs because you don't notice the thing that's not there, right? But that is definitely an advantage of this kind of approach in that your software becomes more reliable and it has fewer defects in it. Uh, we have customers where that is a big goal for them. They just want to have fewer blow-ups in the field. That is a clear objective for them. Everyone's happier that way. The second point is about the creativity is like you're taking a lot of the drudgery away. And we're, we've tried very, very hard to focus on tasks that are drudgery, get those uh, to be, those are the things that can be automated easily and everyone is happy. Developers are happy because they get to spend more time focusing on the more creative aspects of their job, which is mostly about figuring out, you know, I, I want, I, as a user, what I'm seeing is speed. I'm seeing I get more things faster in my application, right? And so the pace of innovation picks up because I'm able to ship more frequently and therefore I can get things into people's hands. I get feedback from the users of the application much more quickly now because I'm shipping more frequently. That's the advantage. And I'm spending less time on the drudgery. Nice. And I have one more question about the future because I am I know there's a lot of A-B testing type of capabilities out there. And I'm just wondering, do you see this yeah. playing a role there for the future? So you've, you've already seen that 
there are um, AI-driven uh, testing approaches for, for that QA phase where you can simulate humans, right? So essentially simulating human interaction with the application, and you can sort of put those two things together. You know, A-B testing is mostly about, you know, which of these performs better, but you can also, you know, figure out are there problems associated with this approach? Not, not does it work better, but is it is it working at all? Is it giving me uh, what is expected? Um, but the, the A-B testing thing, I think, is here to stay, particularly for end user behavior. You've got real humans using the product. You want to know what's preferable, what, and if it's a shopping cart, what converts better. You know, Netflix, they, you know, they're caring about recommendations uh, for a long time, spent a lot of time focused on that. Those kinds of things really matter to, to end users. Um, and I think you know, that A-B testing really sort of helps with the, the human, capturing the human behavior. Well, Marco, uh, I think we're continuing to reinforce that AI is a, a, a tool that helps humans, <laughs> not a tool to replace humans. Um, and it's still driven driven by the humans. And in this case, we're looking at uh, the engineers, be they uh, the app, engineer, app developers or the, the test engineers. And sounds like positive impact, even if they can't experience it, positive impact for the end users, right? Uh, more available, yeah. higher integrity, fewer bugs, perhaps even uh, faster release cycles. So those new features come out to even, yeah. even quicker. I mean, w once you start perceiving that these things are not substituting anything, are just making our time more valuable maybe to work on better things uh, can actually be only a positive outcome for society now i'm being very idealistic and optimistic and utopic but you know that that's that's the point and uh yeah it's augmenting and maybe as uh, matthew said uh, maybe we just choose the wrong name for this thing it's not artificial <laughs> and it's not intelligence let's talk about that more but now this what this made me really think a lot this conversation so thank you so much matthew i appreciate it thank you thanks for having me on thanks matthew and for those listening uh we'll we'll link to the article that matthew wrote on uh the uh the new stack.io and uh we'll also provide any other resources that matthew thinks would help uh learn about this topic more uh from a business perspective, engineer perspective, perhaps even a consumer perspective, if appropriate. So thanks, everybody, for listening to this redefining technology here on ITSP Magazine. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Technology Podcast. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. 
We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.